This is Dr. Charles Parker, and you're listening to Core Brain Journal. It's the place where I connect both fresh discoveries and interesting different perspectives from advanced mind science with the realities of real people and everyday life down on Main Street. Well, welcome aboard, folks. Dr. Charles Parker. Here we are one more time at Core Brain Journal with a very interesting, and we've covered this topic a number of times before, with a number of different guests. We're talking today about glyphosate and what it can do to the brain, what it's doing to our health as a nation. It's a big deal. And the person we have joining us is a journalist who is very well researched the problem of glyphosate and Roundup. And today we're going to be having Carrie Gillum join us. Carrie, thanks so much for coming on board. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Chuck. Glad to be here. So in just a second, I'm going to fully introduce Carrie to you. Let me just say a few words from our sponsor on the front end. Core Brain Journal is sponsored by Great Plains Laboratory, who they are deep international biomedical testing leaders for improved targeted mind science details out there in Kansas, right there where Carrie lives. As both laboratory and webinar global thought leaders, they provide the most comprehensive set of hard data measurement tools for real biomedical answers beyond guesswork. And they also provide multiple, this is important, training webinars for both the public and our medical providers on how to use that data effectively in the office. Check out their website. I'm going to give it to you in just a second for references and very specific testing details. And take note on this point. Great Plains Laboratory, in supporting our work, is doing complementary test drawings over there and they have a total of eight different tests that are rotated through over there. So if you go over to this page and happen to take a look at it, you can see one of the tests that you can actually submit an application for, and you could win a free test. And these tests are very comprehensive tests, and the, uh, from oats to mycotoxins to specific toxin tests that actually test some of the materials we're talking about today. So go over to greatplainslaboratory.com forward slash CBJ. Why not jump on it right now? That'll be great. So let me tell you about Carrie. So Carrie is a veteran journalist, researcher, and writer with more than 25 years of experience in the news industry covering corporate America. Since 1998, Gillum's work is focused on digging into the big business of food and agriculture. She's out there in the Midwest. As a former senior correspondent for Reuters, International News Service, Gillum specializes in finding the story behind the spin, uncovering both the risks and the rewards of the evolving new age of agriculture. Gillum's areas of experience include biotech, crop technology, agrochemicals, and pesticide product development, and the environmental impacts of American food production. So it sounds deep, folks, but we can get it simplified today for you so you can actually start thinking about what's going on. Her research has taken her on travels throughout America's farm country, from the Dakotas to Texas, from California to Florida, and she's visited the high-tech laboratories and greenhouses, and indeed the corporate offices of some of the largest U.S. agribusinesses, and met many times with key U.S. regulators, lawmakers, and scientists. So today we're going to be talking about her book, which is really a very big deal, and it's called Whitewash, the Story of a Weed Killer cancer and the corruption of science. Let me tell you a little bit about whitewash, and then we're going to hear a lot more about it from Carrie. 
whitewash details glyphosate, and glyphosate is the most widely used agrochemical in history. Agrochemical, I got to get that word down. It's a pesticide so pervasive, it's actually in our air, our water, our food, and even in our own bodies. For decades, it's been praised as the chemical that's safe enough to drink, but a growing body of scientific literature ties glyphosate to cancers and a host of other health and environmental threats, as you've heard here on a Core Brain Journal. You know, we've had a number of people commenting on it. So Whitewash, Carrie's book, explores the legal claims of thousands of Americans who've actually had to deal with the problem of, in fact, being poisoned by glyphosate. So with that, I'm going to just go on and introduce Carrie to you. And, and really, Carrie, what I'd like to know is, how did you actually switch? This is a, the beginning of who is Carrie. How did you switch from that very interesting topic which I didn't cover in the intro, but uh, banking and corporate America in that sense, and switch over to the farmland and actually the investigative journalism over there. What, what made you switch there? <laughs> well, that's an easy question. I was actually assigned to do it. You're right. I was a banking reporter. I really enjoyed that. You know, you're meeting with some powerful people and you're in suits and ties and uh, high heels and sitting down for meetings in luxurious offices oftentimes and chasing data. I loved the job and loved the beat. And when Reuters said, hey, we want you to move to Kansas City and write about food and farming and agriculture, I thought, well, that <laughs> really doesn't sound very interesting. <laughs> but I decided to make the move and uh, started digging in and learning everything I could, of course, and doing what reporters do, finding the facts, talking to people, reading the data, and doing the research. And came to believe and realize, and still do believe, of course, that farming and agriculture is our single most important industry. You know, we all eat. We all need food to sustain our lives. Mm -hmm. And uh, so to me, this is this is a critically important industry. And the seeds and chemicals that, that are used to grow our food are critically important um, things that we all need to know about. We need to have truth and transparency around the, the risks as well as the rewards associated with this. Well, you know, Carrie, one of the things I couldn't agree with you more, one of the things I find so commonplace in talking with people, even in talking with experts that we've interviewed, the language is so different for people. So it's sort of like the language of neuroscience is like, wow, that's too deep. Don't bother me with it. Just give me the pill and I'm going to go on home. And yet when you start talking about things like GMO and its relationship with glyphosate, I hope that we can really spend a moment or two just breaking this down with you because part of what we do here at Core Brain Journal is really introduce the language and stimulate the curiosity about how these things actually connect. But exactly what you were talking about, the lives we live every day, the food that we eat. And so could you tell us a little bit about that, if you don't mind? Because it's a, it's a little bit of a deep dive, but if you could hook those two concepts together. GMO is all over the place. We talk about it all the time. But what in the heck, how does GMO hook up with glyphosate? Sure. No, thanks for asking. That's an important point to make clear. So in the 1990s, when I was assigned to start covering this industry, that was the time period in which these genetically engineered crops were introduced to the world. You know, Monsanto brought 
really our first mainstream genetically engineered crop, uh, soybeans, to the farming community and rolled it out. And GMO crops now are planted widely throughout the United States. More than 90% of our corn and soybeans are genetically engineered. We have genetically engineered cotton and alfalfa and sugar beets and cotton. There's genetically engineered papaya. We have some um, new types of genetically engineered apples. So they've really become sort of a mainstay in our food supply. But in the beginning and to this day, the main trait, the main genetically engineered trait that is planted is not anything that benefits consumers. It's not a trait that makes plants more nutritious or makes them you know, more sustainable or yield better or grow better without adequate moisture or anything like that. The main trait is to allow the crops to be sprayed directly with weed killer. And that's why Monsanto introduced them. They had this weed killer called glyphosate that is the main ingredient in Roundup. Monsanto had introduced it in 1974, and it became a very profitable product for Monsanto, the most widely used weed killer in the world. And the patent on it was due to expire in the year 2000. And Monsanto was looking to keep a hold of that market to continue to dominate that weed killer market. So when they, they developed these genetically engineered crops, Roundup Ready crops designed to be sprayed with and used in conjunction with Roundup. And it was wildly successful. Farmers said, wow, I can now buy these special GMO seeds and Rather than you know be very careful about how I kill weeds in my fields, I can just douse my whole field with Roundup, and the weeds will die, but my soybeans will not because they have been genetically engineered to tolerate this weed killer. And that was a fundamental change. It provoked a fundamental change in the way farmers grew their crops. And we saw farmers move away from crop rotation. We saw them move away from the use of cover crops. And we saw them use more and more and more glyphosate. Glyphosate weed killer use exploded from the 1990s until today from about 40 million pounds a year on U.S. farmland to about 300 million pounds a year now on U.S. farmland. 300 so million, million pounds. pounds. So it was a brilliant move by Monsanto. I mean, <laughs> it really was. It wasn't so good for the rest of us because this widespread use of this weed killer has impacted the soil, the health of the soil, the health of the water supply, and has left residues throughout our food supply. So, of course, we're finding, uh, scientists are finding this weed killer in our urine very prominently in human urine because we're consuming it so regularly in our food and water. So, I mean, that's the connection between GMOs and pesticides. Um, that's the predominant connection. And many people worry and have worried about the genetic trait itself and whether or not that incorporates any problems for health, any allergenicity issues. That is a level of concern. But my main concern has always been the pesticide use associated with these GMO crops. And, and well, you know, at the risk of sounding too simplified and pedantic, I think this whole series of remarks that you just made are absolutely essential to the conversation because I think that the American public does not hook up GMO with anything. I don't think they have an idea what it is. And I think that GMO is somehow bad, but what is it? And in fact, the clarification that you made, whether the GMO itself is an inherent problem is so minimal compared to the, the concept that GMO is inherently connected with glyphosate poisons. Somebody's doing a GMO product, and 
correct me if I'm wrong, I'm a relative novitiate to this whole thing, but if a person has is eating GMO products, then they are by definition going to be hooked up more directly and more predictably so with glyphosate. Is that true? Yeah. I mean, you're getting then food ingredients, you're getting ingredients that have been sprayed directly with glyphosate, yeah. with Roundup, because that is the purpose of most of these GMO crops. Now, I like to say, I don't think you can paint all GMO. GMO is sort of a descriptive general term. There are different types of genetic engineering. There are different types of foods, different types of techniques and, and traits. So you can't paint them all with one brush. But as I said, the biggest and most popular and most widely planted is this glyphosate, this herbicide tolerance. The others are minuscule, the other traits that have been applied. But but the herbicide tolerance hasn't just caused problems with this increased use of glyphosate. The glyphosate has created so much weed resistance throughout farm country that farmers are now combining glyphosate with 2,4-D and dicamba, which oh are also gosh. harmful herbicides, and are now spraying their crops directly with glyphosate, dicamba, and 2,4-D in many circumstances. So the herbicide load that we're now getting in our food supply is just astronomical. And the rates of increase that are predicted for a state like Iowa, a major corn growing state, are just very alarming. And uh, scientists are trying to raise alarm bells about this. And it doesn't bode well for where we're headed in terms of public health when we're dousing ourselves so liberally with these weed killers. Well, this is so interesting because then you've added a whole nother additional important dimension. And that is this addition of additional toxins. I mean, let me ask you this question. As, as a reporter, as an investigative journalist, in terms of the people who are listening, and we do have a lot of people in our audience who are interested in this very topic, is there anything we can say to direct them regarding their choice of products that they do select? My question that comes to mind with the pervasive nature of what you're talking about, is there anything safe to eat. If you go to whatever your favorite grocery store is, and here in Tidewater, I can tell you the grocery store business is remarkably competitive. Grocery stores are closing left and right. I mean, you've got Whole Foods in and they're delivering with Amazon. I mean, it's unbelievable. But the, the grocery store business is a little crazy. But having said that, going in to actually look in the grocery store, what kind of cautionary notes can you tell us from your resources, your understanding, the people you've spoken with, what can they shop for safely? I mean, is organic enough? Or is there something else that you need to really think about as a an informed shopper? Well, and that's a good question as well. A lot of people have come to believe or understand that if they just get something that's not genetically engineered, then they're good, right? They're fine. But along with the GMO crops, the industry has also marketed these weed killers, and glyphosate in particular, as a desiccant which is sort of a drying agent for non-GMO crops, for crops like wheat and oats, for instance, and barley and other things. And they've really encouraged farmers to spray their crops right before harvest directly, again, directly over the top with glyphosate. And what you're finding there is that, that like oatmeal, like baby food oatmeal pulled off store shelves and tested by the FDA has been found to have much higher levels of weed killer in it than say would yeah. a product made with GMO soy, for instance. So even a non-GMO product like an oatmeal or a honey, we found glyphosate in even organic 
honey. But that said, to answer your question, I mean, organic probably really is the only best answer if you just don't want to have to think about it <laughs> too much. <laughs> because of course, synthetic pesticides are largely banned from use in the production of organic foods. But it doesn't mean it's pure. It doesn't mean that you're completely getting away from synthetic pesticide exposure, but it means you've reduced your risk. That's such an important clarification. And as a non-recovering oatmeal person, <laughs> right. I, can, I can tell you caught my attention with that one because I'm thinking I'm okay, but I wasn't thinking about the desiccant aspect. What is the physiology on the desiccation process? And they, they don't want the grain itself to be have moisture in it when it's stored because it'd be more likely to mold and mildew? Mold or mildew or something. Yeah, I mean, you need your, your crop to essentially be dry before you're, you're going to store it. And the farmers want their fields to be relatively even when they're harvesting, right? And fields might mature at different rates. So if you desiccate, and it's particularly used in more northern and cooler and wetter climates. So Canada, it's popular in Canada. It's more popular in areas like North Dakota and our spring wheat growing areas more so there than maybe in Kansas in a hard red winter wheat growing area. But mm -hmm. so, yeah, they could, they found that they can use it to make their jobs easier in the short term to harvest this. But what we're finding is that many grain companies as consumers have become more aware of this practice and food companies are realizing that consumers are realizing that this stuff is in our food. They're starting to push back and like Bungie, which is a very large grain handling company, has actually started putting in their contracts that they will not take grain anymore from farmers who have desiccated their crops with, with glyphosate. So the more consumers are aware and the more they make their concerns known, the more the food companies and the grain industry is responding. So does organic then cover if a person's shopping? and I'm not just talking about myself and oatmeal, I'm just talking in general, uh, does it cover the desiccant aspect of it as well? So if it's organic, you are going to make an assumption that it has not been desiccated with uh, right. glyphosate. Okay. Exactly. No, you would not be allowed to do that. Um, All right. That is a very, very interesting point. I really appreciate you bringing it up. It's helpful to me personally. I mean, and you think about, because me, I'm a lot of our public people we're talking to, recognize they have sensitivity and immunity issues with wheat and milk and these sort of things. So when you look at immunoglobulin G tested by Great Plains, by our friends at Great Plains, and we do IgG testing all the time on treatment failure. Well, if we're looking at IgG, what do we, we go down and look at what's there. Well, frequently a person will have a gluten sensitivity and we think, okay, well, we can go over to oatmeal as a grain. And, uh, you know, that's what you're saying is oatmeal, yes, but... <laughs> Let's be, right. careful. Let's be careful with this whole thing. So I'm going to ask you this question, and we're going to take a little break because I'm, I'm interested in this. In, in terms of personalizing this a little bit, in terms of your own development as an investigative journalist, I'm going to ask you this question when we get back. I don't want to put you on the spot, but on the other hand, I think it's going to be kind of interesting just to hear what – it's not really going to put you on the spot. You'll give us a story <laughs> because you can't put an investigative journalist on the spot. I don't think it's possible. But the thing I'm going to ask you that I want to know about is when you felt perplexed, and one of the most perplexing times you felt when you were actually in the process of discovering, what do I do with this piece of information, and what was the context of that? Because from a human point of view, you're a deep person. You're deep, you're thoughtful, you're intelligent, you're looking at data, and yet even you, as deep as you are, could come into a situation like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe this. So 
When we come back, we're going to take a little break right now. And when we come back, I'd like to attempt to address that question, if you don't mind. Today, the world of mind science, psychiatry, and mental health is rapidly changing with innovative, comprehensive testing that takes both patients and practitioners into a new world of measured details with useful, understandable, and remarkably actionable plans. The key phrase here is cost-effective. Testing also introduces a key parallel word, predictability. Psychiatric treatment failure, especially after multiple medications and our brief hospitalizations, arises directly from the complexity of measurable brain-body imbalances and impediments that explicitly interfere with medical outcomes and create costly difficulties with inadequately informed supplement and medication trials over time. Great Plains provides a leadership team of biomedical experts with advanced laboratory insights approved nationally both by the FDA and CLIA laboratory certifications and is available internationally for both public and medical professions. Great Plains Laboratory is the primary laboratory we've used at CoreSight for years with excellent customer service for both patients and medical colleagues. They are on the spot. They get it every time. In addition, they provide exemplary training modules, which are webinars and conferences, in an effort to broaden practice perspectives wherever you live. Do follow up on one of these complimentary test offers today at http greatplainslaboratory.com forward slash cbj yeah that's core brain journal cbj well welcome back folks we're with carrie gillum the author of whitewash the story of a weed killer cancer and the corruption of science which is a key thing here at core brain journal we're interested in the science we're trying to introduce science into the whole evolution of neuroscientific development, how we actually take care of the human mind. And this conversation is absolutely germane to that point. And I didn't want to put Carrie on the spot, but I thought it'd be interesting from a human point of view to see what would roll Carrie's socks up and down in her lifetime. She's moving through life and then she comes up to this thing as an informed, both as a consumer and as a journalist and a scientist. Basically, she's looking at the science. So have you had some transformational moments in that regard that might uh, come to your mind? Well, (laughs) transformational, perhaps. Recall there was a real shift in my view and I guess my observations and the way that I digested information. And that was around early 2000 when the industry Monsanto was trying to bring to market a Roundup Ready wheat a new type of wheat, a GMO that would be the world's first non-GMO wheat, uh, which would tolerate being sprayed with glyphosate, would be Roundup Ready wheat. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, no, I was just taking, I was taking a breath real quickly. What was the name of the wheat so we could get it? You said it, but I didn't quite understand it. Roundup Ready. It would oh, be, Roundup Ready wheat. Right. And then oh, my gosh. They're, they're, right. They're, oh, my gosh. And Monsanto really wanted to do this. And, of course, they told me and other reporters how badly farmers needed this and wanted it. It was all about meeting the demands of farmers, of course, because they're there to help farmers, you know, grow food, feed us all, save us all from starvation. Well, as I reported it out and started talking to farmers and going to farmer meetings and spending time, I found that, guess what? Farmers really didn't need it and they really didn't want it. 
And they would much rather have, they were not against GMOs, but what they wanted was a GMO that would help them fight disease. They were experienced particular types of disease problems in wheat, in particular in their spring wheat. And they didn't really need a weed killer type of GMO. And Monsanto said, yeah, you know, maybe we'll figure that out down the road, but we really want to give you this, this Roundup Ready wheat right now. Oh. And it, I guess that's when it became clear to me. This isn't about farmers. I mean, maybe it took me too long to figure it out. This isn't about doing anything for the farmer. It's not about doing anything for the consumer. This is just about selling more Roundup. This is just about profits. And the global markets absolutely reacted negatively to the prospect of a GMO wheat because bread is central to our life. And, you know, it has a very um, emotional connection with people in, in terms of food and foreign markets said, if you introduce it, we won't buy it. And there was so much pushback that Monsanto ultimately did shell. But I think that, for me, was really the determining factor that, you know, you've got to give this a really critical eye because the messaging from the corporations is really not in line with the truth of what is happening on the ground. You know, it's so funny. I'm thinking of the marketing guy that came up with that Roundup Ready wheat. How to unsell something. Basically, to brand the wheat and have, you know, RR on the box or something like that. Right. You know, to actually get the name out there and thinking that's somehow going to move it forward was such a uh, limited view of what's actually going on. And, and it's sort of non-responsive. It's like the old 180 reverse degree advertising theory. You know, you say you say what it isn't to try to actually sell it, you know, instead of really talking about what it actually is. It's really kind of interesting. So that would have been a shock. That would have been an interesting shock. And it would have been, then that makes you a, a very bad person to them. I'm sure you got some more heat in that because it's, that would have been, I would think from a journalistic point of view, so easy to take apart. Well, it, it was. And I often wonder, I like to, in my own little mind, take credit in part for, for that product being shelved because I did report that very thoroughly and I reported the opposition from foreign countries and I spent a lot of time with farmers and I really made it clear through the Reuters International News Network that, you know, what was going on here. And, um, you know, Monsanto did come under enough pressure that it shelved it. But the other aha moment, or perhaps not transformational, I don't know how you want to describe it, <laughs> was going through all of these documents that we've obtained, thousands and thousands of freedom of information documents and internal corporate documents from Monsanto that are laid out in my book. They really show such an extended and strategic deception, decades of deception. And for me, because as a journalist, you try to be balanced, you try to give everyone the benefit of the doubt, you try to rationalize different motivations. And, and so I, I, I really don't ever want to assign ill motive to any party that I'm, that I'm covering. But jaw dropping is really the only way to describe what you see in these internal documents where deception is the name of the game. And um, I was testifying before European Parliament last October and moments before I was about to speak with six other scientists next to me. And the title of my talk was Decades of Deception. And I thought, oh, Lord, is that, can I really say that? Can I really <laughs> make that case? And, yeah. and be truthful about it. And, and I went over the evidence of my mind. That is exactly what it is. It's exactly what it is. I'm the same way. You know, you hesitate because you don't want to do harm to anyone. You're obviously a very thoughtful, deep, deliberate, and caring person. There's, I mean, you, it comes across through your voice, your intent, and, 
and the way you're talking. And you really care about the whole thing. So the issue is, and you're also in, into accuracy. You don't want to be phlegmatic. You don't want to be emotional. Uh, you want to be just, hey, here are the facts. But on the other hand, if it is deception, it's deception. It's the same thing that happened with Rachel Carson in, in, in the Silent Spring. I mean, that was exactly what was going on. People were just saying completely inappropriate things. And, and it must have been difficult to take that stand. How did that presentation go for you? Well, uh, they had invited uh, the chairman of Monsanto to actually be next to me. They had invited seven experts from around the world. They called them experts. Uh, the chairman of Monsanto declined to attend. Parliament was very unhappy with that. But in his place was a scientist named David Kirkland. And part of my presentation had a couple of slides showing the secretive relationship that he had with Monsanto. <laughs> so he was very unhappy and yeah. members of the European Parliament were outraged and really went after him. And, uh, yeah. you know, it was interesting. <laughs> well, you know, it's, 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 it's the same thing that was going on. You basically, if you're misrepresenting facts and you're manipulating reality, it's going to come down and sit on your head down the road. It's just absolutely going to happen. And uh, I think it's happening. Uh, it's happening in a lot of places that are uh, purported to be scientific and, uh, and using good data. It just is it's one of the things we have to deal with. Well, exactly. And the point that I try to make in the book, the book is not I'd say not about glyphosate. I mean, it's about a much bigger problem. It's about a pesticide-dependent food system and a propaganda system and a corporate control dichotomy that has left people, all of us, our families, our children, really vulnerable in terms of our health and the health of our environment. And so this, the book is about people. I, I open with a farming family. I close with a farming family. I have farmers spread all throughout the book because Glyphosate and Monsanto, to me, really are just, it's a poster child for the bigger problem. Mm -hmm. if, you, if Monsanto and glyphosate go away tomorrow, you haven't really solved the problem because right. it's many other companies, many other products, many other pesticides, but it's all the same playbook. We have to have these to feed the world. We shouldn't have limitations. We shouldn't have regulations. It's all about the next harvest and the next profit. And uh, we consumers are just supposed to um, sit down and eat our food and not worry about it and, and not make any noise about it. And uh, that's just not going to be sustainable in the long run. I mean, you look at cancer rate. You, if you look at the data on health, you look at rising rates of cancer, neurodevelopmental problems, obesity, kidney disease, liver. Um, we're not healthy. And, we're <laughs> and there are a lot of reasons for that. But pesticide prevalence in our food supply and in our environment is one very big factor. And uh, we need to, to pay attention. Well, you know, it's so true. We have a number of experts. I was talking to you a little bit offline before we got started with individuals. And, uh, you know, one of them is Stephanie Senoff. You know Stephanie. And she just is so articulate in uh, speaking here in Core Brain Journal at 134 about how it works with autism and how, how directly related it is to uh, developmental delay issues and in, in a malady that just is on the rise all over the place. And uh, people then say, and, you know, we used to think it was a refrigerator mom. I mean, that was, you know, putting a psychological twist on an underlying biologic problem uh, that is really pervasively increasing because of these things that are not adequately addressed sufficiently and not corrected and not, not investigated like you have. So I'm long distance high five to you and your kin out there doing a great job. I think it's groundbreaking. I would say in closing, 
we want to make sure we plug where they can get your book. I'm going to have the book link also on the show notes. If somebody's driving in the car right now, it'll be right there on the show notes. But are, are there any other sites that you want to drive people to as we close that you think, hey, guys, this is something we all need to be a part of and uh, pay attention to? Other sites, not for my book, but other sites. I mean, yeah. mm-hmm. U.S. Right to Know. I left Reuters at the end of 2015 and in 2016, both wrote my book and took a job as research director for this little nonprofit called U.S. Right to Know, which really just allows me to continue my research. My main job is to file Freedom of Information Act requests and to post all of these documents on the website where the public can access them very easily and for free and can search them. So the U.S. Right to Know website, we have a host of information on not just pesticide issues, but sugar and obesity um, CDC, other things that relate to food and health. So we encourage people to go there and and make use of our resources. That's very interesting. Now, this is one closing remark, and and you know that we use Great Plains uh, testing in our practice. You don't know this, but we use it in our practice. And yeah, they're a sponsor, but I'd still appreciate Do you have anything if, if a person says, okay, let's get scientific about this. Carrie, you've convinced me that I gotta do something. Do you have any specific recommendations on testing? Like, hey, here's the way to find out what's going on. Right. Well, there are a number of places now that have started offering testing for your urine if you want to know if you have glyphosate in your urine, which you probably do. (laughs) (laughs) I do. Most of the people, you know, um, varying levels. But yeah, places like Great Plains and there are others around the country that can test, according to Bill, like you can send what hair or urine or blood or things like that. And they can test for an array of heavy metals as well as pesticides and things to help determine if ailments are tied to some of these contaminations. And uh, But, you know, I think the main thing that I would encourage people to do is if you're not seeing an educated medical provider, if you're not seeing an integrated medical doctor, if you're just seeing a conventional medicine, a doctor like, like my own, to educate them, to tell them about this. Because, you know, when I go to my doctor and I say, hey, when you're running on my blood and urine, can you test for glyphosate? Can you test for all these things? She says, what are you talking about? I've yeah. never heard of that. I don't know what that is. I don't know anything about it. So I think, I think we need to bring our medical professionals into this world so they understand how important it is to get a grasp on these environmental contaminants and what they're doing to our health. It's not enough to just keep providing pills and popping pills. We need to start heading the stuff off before we get sick. Carrie, I am so glad that you closed with that perspective because I think it's an absolutely essential perspective. And I hope that everybody here that listens to this important program and listens to what we're doing here at Core Brain Journal does share it with their medical providers because what we do and what we're going to have in your show notes are peer-reviewed references that are codifying and breaking down the research that has been done as opposed to living in the darkness. And the people who actually provide the care are considerably behind, in my opinion. Uh, and I'm not, There's no fault. The science is caught up so fast from the days when I was trained. It's a completely different world in just plain old neuroscience alone. I mean, Gary, you get a kick at this. I was originally trained in psychoanalysis thinking that was going to be my entire career, you know? put somebody on a couch and talk to them for five years, you know, and or remain silent and let them talk to me, however it would go. But, but the bottom line is the world has changed so dramatically in just the last 50 years in terms of what we know. And we need to take every opportunity to help our medical professionals and our colleagues, our friends and colleagues. Hey, guys, 
let's think about this part of it and we can grow from it. Carrie, just you telling me about the oatmeal was helpful. I think it's great having a person like yourself who's well-educated, can come in and and help others, like even those of us who are interested in, in listening to these things, think even more deeply than we previously have about the uh, limitations of our perceptions and how we can actually dig deeper into it. I really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate you having me here. I, I love to talk about these issues, obviously. Well, you've done a great job, Carrie. Thank you so much. If something comes up and you say, hey, Parker, here's another voice. We got we to hit it with your audience. You just let me know. We'd be happy to have you come back on. Great, great. Thank you very much. Thank you, Carrie. You have a good one. You too. Thanks for listening to Core Brain Journal. We're working every day behind the scenes to bring you reports that connect research benches with those street trenches. Here we share the complexity of mind science because, as you know, details really do matter. One of the most pervasive misunderstood challenges is how commonplace medications like those written for ADHD, are used so regularly without clear guidelines. If you think you'd like more specifics, take a minute to download my two-page PDF packed with video links and references on the absolute essentials of how to start ADHD medications. They're easily available at corebrainjournal.com forward slash start. Thanks for listening. Do connect and stay tuned. Together we can make a difference.